in 1 Kings chapter 4. We'll pick up reading in verse 20 and read to the end of the chapter. The first 19 verses that we are skipping is a list of the officials that are serving King Solomon. Verse 20, 1 Kings chapter 4, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over everything west of the river from Tipsa even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides around about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Those deputies provided for King Solomon and all who came to King Solomon's table each in his month. They left nothing lacking. They also brought barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezrahite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And if you just turn over a few pages to chapter 10, we'll read the opening Statements of chapter 10, seeing evidence. Here we have recorded evidence of what we just read being true, that kings, or in this case queens, were coming from all over to meet Solomon. Now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. 
When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers, and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are, those, are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir in a very great number of almug trees and precious stones. The king made of the almug trees supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also lyres and harps for the singers. Such almug trees have not come in again, nor have they been seen to this day. King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire, which she requested, besides what he gave her according to his royal bounty. Then she turned and went, in, went to her own land together with her servants. Now, with reading that passage, it might be a, a bit odd when I tell you now that the topic for this morning is knowing God. Quite an obscure text, somewhat familiar to us. We're familiar with Solomon. We're familiar with his wisdom. We're familiar with the Queen of Sheba. The story there, all that surrounds it. But then to talk about something like knowing God that's so foundational. And it is foundational. But the fact that it's foundational doesn't mean that it's unimportant. In fact, the foundational issues in our Christian lives are the ones that we ought to give the most attention to. I mean... Take this building, for example. If something happens to the foundation, it's going to require a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of financial obligation in order to repair it. If a window gets cracked, it can be repaired, minimal cost, minimal labor, minimal time. In just a few hours, it could be repaired. It's the same with our lives. We should be giving the majority of our time and our effort to the foundational issues. And there isn't a more foundational one than that of knowing God. It's so foundational. And I, you can hear the dread in me using the word foundational because we think foundational is simplistic. That we should move on past the foundation. It is true that we can't hang around in the foundation forever. I mean, if there were nothing but a foundation here right now, we would be cold and wet and miserable. So it's important that we continue to build on the foundation, but it's important that we give attention to the foundation 
in our Christian lives. Because the foundational reality of knowing God or what we think about God will affect everything about us. Everything that we are. All that we do. All that we think. All that we say. All that we don't say. All that we don't do. There's not one aspect, not a single aspect in your life that isn't deeply affected by who you think God is. Not a single one. If what God says through his prophet Hosea, that his people, people like you and me, will be destroyed because of lack of knowledge, because they do not know him, then our primary objective in our life should be, must be, knowing him. At all cost, as Hosea goes on to say, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Or the way the Apostle Paul says it to the church at Philippi, that we might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Believing that what Jesus is recorded in the Gospel of John saying that eternal life was to know him and the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent into the world to save sinners like me and like you. However, by and large, we have failed in knowing him. In this way, particularly. We are guilty, each and every one of us, you and me alike, guilty of tolerating thoughts about God that are immensely inconsistent with the revelation that he's made regarding himself in the scriptures. We are guilty of thinking what the psalmist records for us in Psalm 50, 21. We're guilty of thinking that he is like us. We're guilty of assuming things like he's soft on sin. He's loving towards everyone, even or especially unrepentant sinners. We're guilty of failing to hear him when he exclaims loud and clear that our thoughts are not his thoughts and that his ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah says it this way, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. His ways and his thoughts are not just a little bit higher than ours. There's a drastic difference between the heavens and the earth. So much so that it's immeasurable. We can't begin. No one's ever been. No one in the sound of my voice right now has ever been there. So we don't even know how to measure it. That's how far beyond us God's way of doing things, God's thoughts are. God is radically different from what our finite minds conceive him to be like. Completely different. It's almost impossible for us to fathom a being who needs nothing who needs no one, yet that's who God is. He doesn't need us for anything. He doesn't depend on us for one single thing. In fact, he's so self-sufficient in and of himself that he insists that we desperately need him. 
And not just for a little pick-me-up, but we need him for everything. In him we move and live and have our being. We are nothing apart from him. He's created us from the dust of the ground. He's breathed life into us. He continues to uphold not only us, but the entire universe by the word of his power. He spoke it all into existence and he continues to sustain it effortlessly. I fear that many of us have, for some reason, reckoned that God has evolved into a more gentle, less harsh God than we find on the pages of the Scriptures. A God who would no longer destroy civilized people like in the days of Noah when he destroyed the earth with water. That he would no longer destroy civilized people like in the days of Abraham when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone from heaven. Yet we find God the Son, the meek and gentle Jesus, the way we like to think of him, proclaiming clearly in the New Testament, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. It's important that we realize that this God of the Scriptures, God the Father and God the Son, are one, and they are holy, and they are righteous, and they are altogether different from us. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. This is God himself speaking through the prophet Isaiah. I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now in thinking about these this temptation, this tendency, this proneness that we have of thinking wrongly about God. It's important that we see how it all connects. This obvious progression of a faulty understanding or an inadequate knowledge of God. If we entertain degrading views of the God of the Bible, then we, as a result, will naturally support extremely high views of mankind. And not just mankind in general, not just the proud leftist, not just the crazy media, not just the people out there, but we will support extremely high views of ourselves. And when we think too highly regarding ourselves, it is an absolute guarantee that we will host twisted ideas about sin. In our arrogance, we don't respect God's definition of sin, but rather we determine what is or what is not acceptable for ourselves, all the while ignoring him, ignoring his word, and the progression continues. When we have these twisted ideas about the reality of sin, it will inevitably corrupt our understanding of the gospel 
and of salvation. If we wrongly define sin, thinking that it's just some minor issue, some small blemish, then the need that we have for a God-sized salvation is completely eliminated. When sin is treated as insignificant, a small amount of salvation is assumed to be sufficient. Which is a major deal. Which is why it's so important now, if we back all the way up to where we began, important for us to affirm the fact that everything that we are is affected by what we think about God. It's the way A.W. Tozer opens up his great little book on the attributes. What we think about God will affect what we think about ourselves which will affect what we think about sin, which will affect what we think about the gospel, which will affect what we think about salvation, which will affect what we think about the church and the family and our job and school. Everything is affected. And if this is true, and I trust that at this point we're willing to nod and affirm, yes, this is true, what we think about God is incredibly important, then it ought to be easy for us then to nod as well with the prophet Hosea when he says, let us know him. Let us press on to know him. Now, the reason for us reading in 1 Kings this morning about Solomon and Sheba is because I want to use it as a bit of an illustration a picture of pursuing God. I mean, think about the setting here. We read about Solomon, and then we read about Sheba coming to visit. Solomon was greater than all the kings of the earth, and to this day would remain the greatest. Solomon was richer than anyone who has ever lived. Solomon was wiser than any man who had ever lived. So much so that it had spread far and wide that all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon. There isn't anyone on the face of the planet today that this is said about. I mean, even in this small group of people, there's probably not one person that we could name that everyone would be just chomping at the bit to get to meet them or spend some time with them. All of the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom that God had put in his heart. Year after year, it continued. They were bringing gifts to him. They were coming to see this great man. And the queen of Sheba was no different. When word spread south into the land of Ethiopia or Cush, where Sheba was ruling, when she heard about Solomon, she made the great trek north to visit him to see if the rumors were true. She said it herself. And she came with numerous questions what the biblical writer calls difficult questions. And she found the reports that she had heard about him to be true. And not just true. She goes a step further and says that the reality that she found in Solomon exceeded her expectations. This is not very often the case, is it? Don't you find that when something has been promoted to you and highly touted, you end up being disappointed? I mean, has no one ever gone on and on talking to you about this great restaurant that they ate at 
and how good the food was. Everything was just perfect. The service was incredible. And then you go and you visit and you eat and you think they must have fasted for a month before they come here, came here. It's really not all that great. They, they must have known what to order. Maybe I ordered the wrong thing. Not so with the Queen of Sheba. When she shows up to see Solomon, there's no disappointment. In fact, she was so overjoyed, verse 9 of 1 Kings 10 says, that it resulted in her praising God. There was quite a cost paid by the Queen of Sheba to make this inquisition. She had a very large crew of escorts and staff. She wasn't some small potatoes queen herself. The camels, the gold, the precious stones, the time away from her people to travel the great distance, the humility required of recognizing that Solomon was greater than she was, yet she came eagerly with great expectation. She didn't come with some hidden agenda, hoping to expose Solomon for not being all that great. She humbled herself and came to learn and hear and see for herself. And all of her expectations were exceeded. She received, verse 13 tells us, all that she desired. The scriptures go so far as to say the half was not told her. And yet she was fully satisfied with what she had seen and experienced It was far too difficult of a task to accurately describe what Solomon was like, even being there in person. What she had heard about him was great, yet it still didn't do him justice because he was too great to be able to be fully explained. Now what I want to do is quickly turn from, we'll visit Solomon and Sheba in a minute, but I want to quickly turn pointing out that Jesus used this story in a way that I want to use it this morning. Solomon as a type. Sheba coming to see someone who's greater than her, longing to know him. God, like Solomon, cannot be fully known. He is incomprehensible. No matter how clear, how accurate, how detailed we describe him, we cannot fully comprehend him. For a number of reasons. One of which is he's infinite. We are finite. We can never and will never fully understand and comprehend him. God is eternal. We're creatures of time. Time that he himself created. We can't possibly, as creatures made by him, rise then to exhaustively know him. Isaac Watts, writing about this, says... In vain our haughty reason swells, for nothing's found in thee but boundless, inconceivable, and vast eternity. It doesn't matter how hard we try, how great of effort we exert. 
We can never fully know him. David writing in the 145th Psalm, I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Very similar to what Paul says to the church at Rome. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Right after exclaiming the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Or Job to his friend Bildad. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways and how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? Now, I began by talking about the importance of us knowing this God. And now I'm talking about and pointing out that he is, in one sense, unknowable. He's incomprehensible. So what should our response be? How do we respond to the fact that God is, indeed, incomprehensible? I mean, do you not feel this contradiction with me? That people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. And no one has known the mind of the Lord. Do not see that there's a tension here between Hosea, let us press on to know him. And Paul quoting from Psalm 14, there's no one who understands. So should our response not be then with the demand to know him, our very lives depend on it, with the guarantee in Scripture that we can't really know him fully, Because his ways are past finding out, should we not then just throw our hands up and say, we can't. (coughs) We can't know him. Why would we press on? His ways are unsearchable. They're past finding out. His ways are higher than ours, infinitely higher. Well, obviously the answer is no. Our response shouldn't be to throw our hands up. Actually, If we take a careful assessment of the situation, I mean, think about it with me. If God, the God of the Bible that we claim to live for, if he could be understood and comprehended by us, he wouldn't deserve our worship. It's the fact that he is incomprehensible and transcendent that moves us to worship and adoration of him. If we were able to comprehend him, He would not be God, and it would be idolatry then for us to worship him. We have to harmonize this in some way. Because it is true on the one hand that God is incomprehensible. And it is just as true on the other hand that he is knowable and he demands that we know him. He's created us for that purpose primarily. He's incapable of being fully known, yet we're commanded to know him. He's transcendent, completely other in his essence. What makes up God is drastically different from us, to the point that we can't really put words on it to describe it, other than say he's completely other or he's transcendent. But not only is he transcendent in his essence, our ability as human beings to understand or comprehend is scanty at best. 
And the distance between God and us is infinitely greater than the distance between an archangel and a flea. I mean, we think that we're pretty high on the chart of creatures, and we are. God's chosen that we be that way. Yet still, there's a greater distance between us and God than us and the lowest creature you can imagine. Because he's completely other. He's uncreated where everything else is created. He's all in all. We're animated dirt at best. He fills time and eternity. Our life is like a vapor, a shadow. Here one minute, gone the next. There's no greater measurable difference in all the world than between God and us. He is holy. We are sin and sinful. He is righteous. We drink iniquity like water, which creates a terrible predicament for us. Because Jesus himself said this is eternal life to know God. It's a terrible predicament because your life and my life depends on our knowledge of an incomprehensible God. At this point, it's not very good news because your life depends on you accomplishing the impossible feat of knowing him who dwells in unapproachable light. Is he incomprehensible? Absolutely. But he's knowable too. This is the remarkable thing about our God. How? How can it be? How can he be both incomprehensible yet knowable? Because this all-glorious God of unsearchable greatness has chosen to reveal himself to us. He's chosen to stoop. To stoop and to make himself able to be known. And not only able to be known, but in his remarkable wisdom, he has created us with the ability to know him. We have these two great problems. Not only is God incomprehensible and unknowable in all of his glory, but we don't have the capacity to know him. Except by his work of recreation or regeneration in us. If God did not reveal himself to us, even as his creatures... Knowledge of him would be certainly unattainable. And although we can't know him, pardon, although we can know him in part, it still, we must remember, is impossible for us to have an extensive, exhaustive knowledge of him. Which should beg another question. How? If God is incomprehensible, and if God has made himself knowable. If God has demanded that we know him or perish, how do we get to know him? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. This is how God has determined that we know him. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So when we feel this tension and we see the predicament that we find ourselves in with the great expectation of knowing the incomprehensible God, instead of fainting under the impossible expectation of knowing the unknowable, we should glory 
in the amazing reality that God became man. That he condescended so that the scriptural truth, with man it is impossible, but all things are possible with God, would be true even in our lives. That we might know him who dwells in unapproachable light. Now think with me about the Queen of Sheba again. She had heard great things about Solomon. She went out of her way and spent a fortune, literally, to visit him. And the half wasn't told her. Yet we do not see her turning from Solomon, heading back south, and bemoaning that she didn't know more about him. In fact, just the opposite was true. She was reveling in what was revealed about his wonderful wisdom and riches, what God had accomplished in and through him. The great transcendence of God, the incomprehensibility of God, is not an excuse for you to forsake seeking to know him. On the other hand, it is the greatest incentive imaginable to press on to know him more. Never being able to exhaust him is not a reason to sit satisfied with a meager understanding of him. Rather, never being able to exhaust him is an excuse to make every effort to know him better because knowing him is what we were created for and the appetite for knowing him in every true Christian is an insatiable appetite. So you will always want more and there's always more to be had. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear from him. And Solomon was a man. He was a wealthy man, yes. He was a wise man. But he was a mere man, and everyone desired his presence. The queen traveled from the ends of the earth, the scriptures say, to hear from Solomon. And Jesus says, we will hear from her again. In Luke chapter 11 As the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, talking to the Pharisees, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Then listen to this. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. We will hear from her in the judgment as she is raised up to condemn those who refuse to seek to know God because something greater than Solomon is here. Christ has come and he has inaugurated his kingdom on earth In order that we might know him, God has become incarnate, robing himself in human flesh, pouring himself out, not anything out of himself, but pouring himself out into human flesh like mine and like yours in order that we might really know him and commune with him. The queen of Sheba, why will she be raised up at the judgment? She had far less truth than you do. She had far less privileges 
than you do. She was interested in Solomon's wisdom. She wasn't one of Solomon's people. And yet she came to hear Solomon's words. You, if you're in Christ, have been given the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ and the the privilege of sonship. And here's the problem for us. We assume that our day of greater advantage and greater privilege secures immunity rather than aggravating responsibility. But the greater privileges, the greater truths, living in the church age rather than pre-church age, living after Christ has come and lived and died and was raised again, having the full counsel of God's word, the responsibility that is laid at your feet as a result of knowing these truths, the expectation of knowing him, of coming from the ends of the earth, of paying whatever cost it takes to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, communing with him, living with him, fellowshipping with him, the expectation is far greater than of Sheba, which is why in the end she will be raised up in judgment. The great privilege that we have of living in our day will not secure our immunity. It will, however, aggravate the responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. We tend to assume that increased privilege negates responsibility, and it's just the opposite. We assume somehow that information at our fingertips is revelation in our hearts, and it's simply not true. We must press on to know him more. And we cannot know him, we will not know him, apart from the life of Christ Jesus who is Lord. We cannot know him apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus who is Lord. We cannot know him apart from the Holy Spirit who was poured out after Christ died, was buried, rose again, spent several days on earth, ascended on high, received gifts among men, one of them namely being the Holy Spirit that he poured out there, recorded for us in Acts 2, that now indwells believers during the age in which we live. We cannot know God apart from the Holy Spirit's application of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And all of these cannot, cannot, cannot are not truths that are meant to keep us at bay. They are truths that are the most inviting, enticing realities known to man. That we have the privilege of knowing the one who sits enthroned on high. Come and see and hear and get to know a man in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. It would do our hearts good to try to wrap our minds and our souls around the reality that the fullness of deity dwells in this God-man. It's true that he is. He is incomprehensible. He is transcendent. He's completely other. He's unknowable fully or exhaustively. 
It's true that his ways are past finding out. It's true that he dwells in the highest of heavens, so high that he has to stoop to behold the things in the heavens. It's true that he dwells in unapproachable light. But it's just as true that he's made himself both knowable and known to his own in his matchless son, Christ Jesus, who is the Lord. So there is absolutely no reason whatsoever, not a single one, that we wouldn't band together and press on to know him. Because of the great privilege for one and because of the danger of destruction for the other. It is the greatest, most enticing truth imaginable that this God who's created everything has chosen to unite himself to us, not in just some legal fashion, though that is there, but we can say with John the Apostle, behold, what manner of love is this, that we've become children of God. This unknowable, incomprehensible, glorious, righteous, holy, and pure God has invited us and commanded us and done everything required that we might have a well-beaten path to the throne room, that we might fellowship there with him forever, communing as a result of the shed blood of his son that spilt there on the mercy seat. May God help us in our pursuit of knowing him, that we might really know him so that it will affect everything about us. As a result of knowing him and seeing him for all that he is, high and holy and righteous and pure and lifted up and transcendent and incomprehensible, we will realize that compared with him we're nothing and that sin is an offense to him because he's holy and he's righteous. And the proof that sin is serious to him is seen in what he did to his son. Do you not think that he loved his son more than anyone else imaginable? And yet when his son took on him the sin of those who would believe, the father turned his back on him and he let him die. Crushed under the weight of the wrath of God in order that we might be brought in. If he didn't overlook the sin when it was on his son, he's not going to overlook it on you. We must run to Christ and find refuge there. Because when we see him for all that he is, and we realize that we're nothing apart from him, and that sin is serious, the gospel becomes everything. And salvation is the greatest thing then in the world. Because we're rescued from the miry clay that we're sinking in very quickly and our feet are set up on the rock and we stand in him forever. Christ, who is the rock of our salvation. And then everything in life is affected. When we have a right understanding of who God is, everything in life will be affected for good.